out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American singer, songwriter and recording artist. It's the one and only Rebecca Pidgeon, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. She was in a British folk pop band in the 80s titled Ruby Blue, but has since gone on to record as a solo artist. And last year, 2022, brought out an album titled Parts of Speech, Pieces of Sound, which is an absolutely beautiful album. So do check that out. But this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative musical period of her life. Anyway, Rebecca, it's over to you. Well, that was the Beatles um, for me because my parents listened to the Beatles was when I was growing up. And um, my mother has a story. She was pregnant with me and, and had morning sickness and was really ill. And during her illness, my dad was playing Beatles for sale over and over and over again. And she said the first record that I was able to toddle over and put onto the record player and play was that that record that I've I'd obviously heard in utero. Yes. Um, I, I'm an avid, huge Beatles fan. And so I, I just listened to them all the time and, and played their records all the time. But then I, um, I, you know, obviously I guess I started playing through their record collection and they had people like James Taylor and the Beatles and they had uh, Joni Mitchell and, um, you know, um, Crosby, Stills and Nat. I mean, this is all American music, but they had some of the Rolling Stones. Who did who did they have that were Brits? They had Ian Dury, but that was much later on. Much later, but yes, as, as a kid, I, like you, I watched Top of the Pops and saw all the, the glam rock on there, or, you know, T-Rex, which I loved, and Slade, you mentioned, and Gary Glitter, uh, all of that stuff. But I remember I fell in love with um, Yellow, right. and I bought their record, Mr. Blue Sky, which was blue vinyl, which I loved. And I was t- hugely into ABBA as well. Yes, well, it's it's quite, um, it's not surprising really. They were perfect pop in that period. I think they, they were perfect they, pop, yeah. And they did the Eurovision Song Contest when it was still a very yes. exciting thing. And I remember they, they won it with yeah. Waterloo and... We were yeah. very excited, even though I probably had gone to bed by the time the results had come out. It was a real, <laughs> yeah. was a real faff in those days, getting the results. But you were born, you were yeah. born in America, weren't you? And your I was. years were in America. That's right. But then you came to Scotland. Mm. My dad happen? is, a, well, my dad's a physicist, so he, they had a magnet lab at MIT in those days, and he worked there. And... Um, I think he was doing his doctorate, I might be wrong, but uh, he was doing research there at the Magnet Lab. And then he got a job at Harriet Watt University, so we, we moved over to Edinburgh. Right. And we were, we were brought up there. I, and I think my, my parents are both English. Um, my mother's from Bedford and my dad is from London. And uh, I think they always intended to come back to the UK at some point. Yeah. Blimey, that's quite, that's quite a, a thing for everybody to... But it was quite mind-blowing for them. It was quite mind-blowing for them to be in the 
you know, in the center of Harvard Square in 19... I think they moved in 1963, so they spent the 60s in the heart of flower power, you know. Yeah, but they they sort of income... Did they... Did they... You mentioned the Beatles, which was quite hip and happening. Did they get slightly into the counterculture of that period? But you yes. Know, they would have done. They Cosby did, Stills yeah. Nash was a bit of a giveaway, wasn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So then what was it? I like? mean, maybe that's why they had all that American music, because they, they were in America. They were on the West Coast, grooving to that sound, weren't they? They wanted to, um, yeah. On the East Coast, on the East Coast. Yeah. Oh, it's the East Coast, God. Sorry, that was hopeless, wasn't it? Really? Yes. Yeah, so they would have. No, they, no. Would have um, they probably weren't into the Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground, though, were they? No, they weren't. Although I got into the, that much later on. Yes, I think they only sold about five hundred copies when that album came out. But everyone's got a copy now, haven't they? So, did you have any yeah. brothers or sisters that you were influenced by when you were sort of growing up? Well, I have my younger brother Matthew, um, who's an actor and also a musician as well. Um, he, uh, did, I mean, some of his musical tastes, um, sort of rubbed off on me. I remember he was really into the Stranglers. Um, so then of course I loved the Stranglers and, but this was, you know, a bit later on in the, in the seventies, late seventies when yeah. punk came in and then, and then all the sort of post-punk bands like the Stranglers and Susie and the Banshees and, but he was younger than me, you know, so um, I bossed him around. I didn't yes. think he was that important, so that's, poor that's man. Right. I, I was the youngest of three, so I got bossed around and got sort of yeah. slightly in a nice way, but, you know, it was <laughs> But I had an older brother who was seven years older than me, who I kind of thought was wonderful. Oh, he that is influential, yeah. It is influential, and he was very into prog rock, so he was into yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, ELO and uh, Barclay James Harvest, all those sort of bands. So I followed that. I was too There young. was, um, I had a friend who had an older boyfriend who was very interested, very, very into Genesis. And so I started listening to that, um, that album, the, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Right, yes. It had to be And that was magic. quite epical. It was very, it was, it was, one <laughs> it of was a journey. It was, it was, it felt sophisticated and slightly pretentious. At the same oh, and you know that my first, I think I, my first um, obsession though, I think, well, I, I suppose my first obsession was the Beatles, then Abba, but then Kate Bush came along and I was just a gone goose. Yes. So were you at that age where that you ever had any teen idols, you know, the David, David Cassidy, Donny Osmond, the Bay City Rollers, did, did any of those come into your orbit? Oh yeah, yeah. I can remember. I can remember, perhaps having a crush on Donny Osmond. I guess the Bay City Rollers. They were a Glasgow band, and I was an Edinburgh girl. Yeah. I I never really got into the Bay City Rollers, although now I I do appreciate them. I mean, I don't know their music, but just just that they had the the guts to look like that. I think is quite admirable. Yes, when I love, we love our children. <laughs> So then, when we when when I got to that wonderful age, yeah, but by the late seventies, I yeah, like I said, I missed punk completely. But then by the late seventies, you know, we had you know Margaret Thatcher gets in. There's this kind of like the eighties appears. There's like the Falkland War. Mm. There's Green and Common. Mm. There's the miners' strike. Huge amounts of mm -hmm. unemployment. Mm -hmm. So when you got to sixteen, mm. did you leave school or stay on for you know college or university? I left school at seventeen actually, and I went to drama college uh, down in London. I went to RADA. Right. 
Good idea. Um, there you go. My God, you must have had so much confidence. No, I was not a very confident uh, young person, actually, but I was determined and had a lot of drive, I think. Yes. Um, and, and I think I was confident in um, that I had something to offer in as an actor and also maybe as a singer songwriter. Yeah. I think my confidence as a singer songwriter came along a bit later. Yeah. Maybe. So when you were there, this is a great period of music. I love the 80s. So like 83, mm. the Smiths come along and that's like, wow, mm -hmm, very exciting. Mm -hmm. And then indie pop happens, very which exciting. I'm absolutely obsessed with. Did you... So who would you class as indie pop? So I would class as indie pop at that period with definitely people like the Smiths, but also there were like indie bands like the June Brides, the, the Wedding Present, Yeah, Yeah, No, We've Got a Fuzz Box, We're Going to Use It. Um, yeah. I suppose Jesus and the Mary Chain and Primal Scream and... Um, yeah. What about people like Blondie? Would you class them as indie rock or they were a bit more mainstream? They were, I suppose I would have thought they were more New, New York punk. New, really. New they, alt they, punk. New York punk. Right. Yeah, they were from... I love you know, the new alt punk thing. Yeah. I suppose you'd put Susie and the Banshees in there, would you? And no, I, I loved Adam. Well, I think, okay. a, I think there's a difference between kind of like London or UK punk and then American punk. You know, there's New York, yeah. there's LA, and I suppose all the other cities have their punk scene. But I think there's quite a difference, isn't there? Because there was that, the whole yeah. CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, you know, with all those bands like the Ramones and Talking Heads. Yes. And, and Blondie yes. as well was obviously in there and television. And I think there was a, definitely a different yeah. vibe. Whereas in the UK, there was like the Sex Pistols and then the Dam and the Clash and Susan the Banshees and then the Buzzcocks. And, and those were all the guys that I was into. I didn't really, except for Blondie, because she was on top of the pops. I mean, she was a hit. Yes. They were a hit. So, And then the Pretenders too. Well, yes, Chrissy Hines. So, yeah, I would have put her as a sort of post-punk, but yeah, sort of, yeah. Mm. It's kind of a tricky one. I know labelling things are so bad, but then so is Templin as well. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, Blondie, yeah. the second single I bought was Denis Denis by Blondie, and I thought she was amazing. And I yeah. love the album Parallel Lines, so it was one of those. That's a great tracks. album. Yeah. A great album. Yeah. 11.59 was my favourite track. So um, you can... Soundtrack yeah, to our life. It was, yeah. to our life. So to, our, to our coming of age life. I know. She was so sophisticated and cool, and we all thought it was... Like, yeah. Oh, God, how, how amazing. But, you know, I can remember... I can remember listening to putting uh, on repeat um, quite a sophisticated album by Joni Mitchell called The Hissing of Summer Lawns, and that was in my parents' collection. And I can remember listening to that when I was 10. Yes. You had sophisticated taste. It took me until I was about 18 to get that album. <clears throat> I got caught in sparks. Yeah, I... Hissing I, of summer, hissing of, uh, yeah, summer that was... Lawns. Hissing of Summer Lawns was my introduction to Joni Mitchell because they didn't have the the iconic records they only right. had that one wow and go. i remember playing it and thinking this is really odd and it's it's not like music i remember thinking but i like it yes i loved it I and i suppose my my yeah my that was a, a sort of immature way of saying it's um a different a different kind of music a different genre 
Yeah, but then I think I mean, it's quite quite a jazz record. It is jazz, but lyrically it's so kind of beautiful and melancholic. But you know, all her albums are melancholic and yeah. sad and romantic. But then I remember much earlier, yeah. I was really into people like the Carpenters, and I thought their lyrics and their songs were so heartbreakingly beautiful. Mm. I was 10. I didn't really understand this at the time. Mm. But then I realized, yes, of course, I was going to like Joy Division and the Smiths because they were just these songs about. I loved Joy Division. Oh, yes. my God. <laughs> so um, heartache. They were so <clears throat> emotional. Yeah. Yes, they were. But Joni, you know, she managed to put complex, you know, emotional sentiment into quite mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. English. So, um, yes, that's that's. Yeah, I, I do love and I also, just on that last point, I do, I, um, Joni Mitchell is very seasonal for me because obviously that's the summer album and then that goes away and then Blue comes out and then Caught and Spark comes out during the winter period and Pajara. I just, you know, I think I think she's just extraordinary, really. But when, mm-hmm. when you were at RADA and doing your acting and thinking this is going to be it, mm-hmm. did, you, did you start also kind of being obsessed with music and going to gigs and, and sort, of, sort of being interested? No, not really, because I didn't have didn't have time and I didn't have any money um although they did give us student discounts to go to the theater because we were drama students so we could go and see the RSC and so forth for quite a cheap you know we got cheap tickets um but what I'd done was I had made demo tapes with my friend Roger Fife who and he while I was at drama college sent them off to independent record labels in London and uh, he sent one uh, got back to him it's called Red Flame Records run by David Kitson and so we went on that record label and made a record before we had even formed a band or knew how to play any instruments really <laughs> um, I mean he played the guitar and I was learning but we'd written all of these songs um, so we recorded them and then slowly made a band and eventually signed with Phonogram with that band, Ruby Blue. Um, so I was, um, so when, when I graduated from drama college, that's when Roger and I made our first record in London. Yes. And were you, I mean, most people are kind of like, making you know especially i mean this is a slightly simplistic sort of outline of the 80s at that point but i mean there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of the bands i often interview they have that kind of you know unemployed period where you know they're just signing Mm -hmm. on they you know they're desperate to make it and you know they record lots they have lots of demos they 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 eventually get a single they they record it they send it to john peel john peel might give it a play then they get john Mm -hmm. peel session then they get that first album they get their little sort of transit van. They go around the UK because it's a tiny place, mm. but lots of venues, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. things are going kind of well. The second album, things are kind of interesting, and then by the third, it's all over because it's rock and roll. So yeah, so were you, <laughs> were you, and you know, at this stage, were you kind of determined? Had you thought actually this is this is my passion? You know, and I've no, you know, I really hadn't at that point. I think I was more. Um, passionate about um, the acting career at that point. And I was passionate about the music, but I didn't, I don't think I had the confidence um, that came later. And 
also I was a young person and I fell in love and with my husband and moved countries, emigrated. So that whole thing had to stop the band. Mm. And then I took a couple of years and realized, wait, I do want to do this. And so then I uh, teamed up with this independent company here in New York called Chesky Records and started making some records with them. Mm. I'm, I'm talking about this like it was all blithely easy. It wasn't. Uh, I, I think that we were we were lucky as youngsters in that band Ruby Blue, and I didn't realize how lucky we were. Um, because when you're young, you don't realize no. that anything particularly special is happening. You just think it's normal, par for the course, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think um, it's one of those things. I have to watch those documentaries where, I suppose you know, doing all these interviews, you know, I think people think, oh, that's that's been kind of quite straightforward. You know, I can see how this works. You know, yeah, it's kind of in and also, you know, I, I I sort of those documentaries on various decades where you know the money people on the stock exchange are making millions, and they think, God, I'm just a genius, and it's they're just at the right place at the right time, and then there's a bang, and it's like exactly, oh, I've just lost it all, actually. I wasn't that clever. I was just a arrogant little person. Yeah. Invested lots. Yeah. And the market was going up and I just thought it was me. Yes. And it wasn't. And then it went yep. And now I've got a cocaine habit. I know. <laughs> 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 oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, I was going along for the ride and Roger was, was pretty seriously driving everything in terms of the business side of things. And I just had my head in the clouds and didn't really care about any of that. And then when I came to the States, um, realized that it was that that side was hard work. Um, I still didn't do it very well, but at least was more aware, yes. aware of it. Amazing. I mean, and, and your work from that period is still there being listened to. Does that kind of amaze you that what you did, you know? Yes. 30, 40 yeah, and time. I don't. Yes, it does amaze me actually, and I haven't heard it for that long, for many, many, many years. And my, the music that I that I do now, I think is very different. I guess you change, you know, you just change as an artist, you change as a person, just throughout your life, and it's almost like when you go back and look, you know, old photographs and so forth, or you remember periods of your life, you, it's, it's, it's almost as if it's a different person and a different life. Yes. And it's so a different it's, era anyway. It's a very different era. But yeah, I can no. remember I was, I was, I was influenced, I think, in those early records that I did in the States. I think I was very influenced by Joni Mitchell. Um, and that, that influence, um, left after a while. And, uh, I came back later on in my career in the States to more of my independent uh, Brit band roots, I think, or, yeah. or original inspirations anyway. Yeah. So when you, I mean, as, as you know, in the acting world, had you become quite fascinated with those films that we all loved at the time, like, I don't know, Betty Blue, Diva, and, and such kind of films that were so iconic during that, that kind of decade. I just wondered if they had sort of had a, I don't know, influence on your or interest as you were sort of, that was your career yeah. at the time. It's funny because I am influenced a lot by movies in songwriting. 
But then, um, are you talking about in the 80s? Yes. I mean, there Films was like the... Blue Velvet. Do you remember yes. that film? And I do remember we all went and watched Betty Blue about three times or five times. And then there was With Mel and I. And there was I'm like... ashamed to say I don't think I've ever seen Betty Blue. I don't know good. what I was doing. I'm impressed. I mean, I should just... see it. <laughs> no, it looks terrible now, but at the time it was deep and meaningful. The soundtrack uh -huh. is lovely, though, but, you know, it's like, I think is you it? have to watch yeah. it when you're quite young because, I don't know, it's a tricky one, isn't it, films? I'm know. just trying to think what films really influenced me when I was a kid. I remember seeing Nosferatu the Vampire and being blown away by that with Klaus Kinski. It was yeah. very terrifying. Uh, I remember... Uh, do you remember getting together in groups of friends and going out to horrify yourself at the horror movies? Yeah, poltergeist. And going to see things like poltergeist. That yeah. was a nightmare. Yeah, I didn't. I, I sort of. I, I wasn't really into horror films, but I kind of knocked that on the head. I was into those kitchen sink dramas from the fifties, like you know, A Taste of Honey and Saturday Night, Sunday. Morning. Yes, A Taste of Honey. That's still a great film, I think. That's Taste still a great film. And, and Morrissey, you know, quotes it in one of his songs in when he was in the Smith. Yeah. Uh, yes, there you go. We have to have to do these things. But then in the 90s, you, you, you know, with the music, when you did your first album, this is The Raven, isn't it? Mm. Did you, at that stage, yeah. this was kind of the mid-90s? Yeah. That was quite a folk-influenced folk record I, from what I remember of it. And it was, um, we recorded it live in, a, in an audiophile setting. We recorded it at the Kaufman Astoria Studios with Chesky Records, and they're known as, a, as an audiophile label. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's a, it's a certain kind of person, um, and it's a certain kind of specialty uh, sound system and it's recorded in a sort of surround sound way so that when you're listening to it in these on these ultra sensitive uh, systems you feel yeah. kind of as if you're in the middle of of the room in the middle of the band and um so i that became quite a well-known record especially the recording i did of a, i made a cover of uh, spanish harlem and they started to, like audiophile uh, vendors, started to use that track to test their systems. And so it became quite a well-known track amongst the audiophile community. Yeah. Because in the previous decade, I remember we got suddenly very excited by people like, there was the singer-songwriter, wasn't there? It was Tracy Chapman, Suzanne Vega, Michelle Shaw. Yes. Did they? Did you Which I, all, of, all of those I loved, and I was influenced by all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I just wondered Especially, what, I suppose, I loved Michelle Shocked. Yes, Shocked, Shocked, Shocked. We love that album. But what about um, the Cocteau Twins and This Mortal Coil? And, yes, and those people? God, we loved them. Were you into them? <laughs> yes, absolutely. We loved all of that. Yeah, there's yeah. there's an album called Treasure, and then there was, is it Song Song to the Siren, which she did? and um, Song yeah. to the Siren, which came out and just blew everybody away. Yeah, it was it was something else actually. Yeah, I mean all their all their stuff, and I love. I mean that was a cover. Song. Yeah, was it yeah. Tim Buckley? Oh, oh yeah, Buckley. Buckley. Buckley, that's the man. Yeah, and I know Robert Plant did 
version. I never listened to it, though. I just couldn't. I don't think the Copter mm. Twins, I mean, Liz Fraser's voice was just something else. But then when, once you did the Raven, yeah. you were really on a roll at this stage, didn't you? You were bringing out this kind of classic every other year. Out, you know, so you put the, brought, brought out the, the New York Girls Club and the Four Marys. So you were, on, you were quite a sort of creative role mm -hmm. at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. Um, I guess I had a record contract that I needed to fulfill, and so I needed to make quite a lot of of work. Um, and I guess I had the time, although I don't know how, because I was a young mother. Mm. It's all a blur. It's all, <laughs> it's all a blur. I think actually, I remember working with. No, after you. Yeah, I worked with I, I worked with a lovely uh, producer called Joel Diamond, who helped me with the arrangements and was is a great musician. And and so he and I worked closely together. He was a, a great help. He built the band up, and and that all of that stuff is stuff that I do on my own nowadays. So yes, and I just wondered. I mean, were you for each particular project? Were you coming at it quite differently with diff you know different ideas, or did you? have, you know, kind of a theme to, to many of these albums. I always think that those those two records were in the same sort of songwriting flow. Yes. They're in the same uh, period of, of my life, and, and they all came from the same impetus, I think. Although we did try to go more electric on, on the New York Girls Club. Yes. Uh, it was, wasn't such an acoustic record, but it was still alive. Yes. And then, so bringing this up to the current day, you've got a new album out, Arctic Speech, Pieces of Sound. Did it, was this a kind of an album that you started recording before the dreaded lockdown or during it? It was actually coming, it was during it and coming out of it that I was recording. And I mainly recorded... I did a lot of recording in my home, in my um, on demos, and then I took these uh, into the studio of of my co-producer Fernando Perdomo, and we brought in a, f a few musicians, sort of one at a time. Mm. There were five of us on the record, and recorded it in several different places. I recorded it at my house, at Andy Studer's house, the violinist. I mean, these are musicians who are recording their their bits at their own places because it's covid yeah um but we were just coming out of it so um actually during covid i had a record that was slated to be recorded which i cancelled the recording because everybody was on lockdown and nobody could go anywhere so that record still hasn't been recorded and then, then what happened was I got into um, studying uh, Samkhya and yoga philosophy during COVID because um, the Iyengar family took uh, their teachings online. Um, I'm an, a student of Iyengar yoga. And so I started studying this and then um, this music started to come to me, this, uh, the ideas for these songs. And the inspiration was this kind of journey through the the chakras, this esoteric yogic uh, energy centers. Um, but it wasn't 
it wasn't meditation music or yogic music. It was a continuation of what I do, which is contemporary art rock, I guess. Mm. Something like that. In, in alternative singer songwriter i never know how to describe myself but yes it's always tricky isn't it it, it's uh, it does have elements of what george harrison was doing it in the beatles that kind of backwards guitar and uh, yeah. using um, indian instrument um uh components and um so anyway, I found myself writing these songs and they they just, you know, I felt an urgency to to work on them and get them out. And so that that's what I was working on. I took it in to Fernando and we, we made that record. Um, yeah, because I was going to yeah. say, because I was quite curious, because when, I suppose, in the late 80s and then throughout the 90s, I suppose I went into that wonderful world mm -hmm. after being into indie pop sort of becoming part more of a community who were quite new agey, sort of hippie new age. And so there was a lot of kind of new age philosophy that was coming in from all directions. I mean, it was, I suppose it was that mm. kind of um, cultural and spiritual appropriation before we even knew what that was. But people were going from North American Indians mm. to yoga, to five rhythms, to chakras, to ley lines, mm. the whole, you know, so the whole thing was kind of swirling around. Mm -hmm. And so I'd listened to quite a few artists and there was lots of chanting in teepees with you know, Jimby drumming and lo people loved all that, you know, that, all that kind of stuff. And so it was very meditative and some of it was, you know, st stunning. I just remember those kind of, you know, people loved meeting on a full moon, didn't they? Having those kind of moments. So you know, some of the music that I was listening to on your new album, it's like, God, that has that kind of energy behind it that I kind of, it was kind of mm. quite familiar in, in places. And that, yeah, so that all kind of makes sense, actually, that, that you were on this kind of similar journey, actually. Well, the, the teacher who I was studying with during lockdown, she was on Zoom, you know, she'd talk a lot about musical elements in the yoga practice. And uh, she talked about the, uh, the instrument called the Tanpura, which is a drone instrument, right. Indian drone instrument. And I looked it up and I thought, God, that's just like the bagpipes. It's just like it's so interesting the way these drone instruments travel around the world in, in different cultures, in different folk music. Um, but anyway, it sounded very familiar to me and it was a, a real springboard um, for the writing. Yeah. Um, she was talking about, um, we, we were learning about pranayama and there's something uh, there's a technique in pranayama called prana kriya. Prana, pranayama is like uh, a sort of breathwork discipline, and prana kriyas are are syllables that you say silently. You don't say them out loud, mm. but they say that in silent speech and in silent sounds, um, there is rever there's still reverberation in the body. And she was likening that to a universal uh, reverberation, and I even thought maybe that's what they're talking about when they say there's still a reverberation from the big bang it's like it's basically it's oh and that's within us as well um and that's like the drone instrument and that's like the tanpura and so i was very inspired by those concepts yes 
So with the track listing, is there a journey? I mean, is is it? Um, yes. There is a journey, isn't there? I yeah. thought, yes. There is a, oh, journey. It is a journey. It's my first concept record, in fact. I was going to and say, this is this is a conceptual moment, isn't it? From, from the first track. It is a conceptual begins. moment. Right. Yeah. So now begins that I had a dream and I'm in a lecture hall and there's a lecturer and he's playing the drum beat and there's all of us students in the lecture hall and he says, I know there's somebody here who can sing this. I think to myself, God, I hope he's not talking about me. I became really self-conscious and he said, don't be afraid, sing it. So I thought, well, I've been instructed not to be afraid. I, I suppose I should just sing it. So I did. And I woke up and note, made a note of this drum beat and this tune. And then when I listened to it later on in the day, I still liked it. And I thought, so what, what is this? What, what is this song? Um, and because I'd been studying, doing the sutra study, um, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which I'm still studying, I brought in the first three sutras and in English, right, um, as basically the lyrics to the, the song. And so this was a kind of introduction. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was the first of several songs that were going to come to me. And then, then I went on this journey through the seven major chakras because each chakra is associated with a deity. Mm -hmm. and also is associated with an, an element. Um, and the elements have what are called bija mantras associated with them. A bija mantra is like the mantra om, for example, that a bija mantra just means, bija means seed, mm -hmm. and mantra means. And um, it's a seed sound, and it, it's mental. It's in the mind, right? And it can be said silently and still have this reverberation. So that idea that we are peopled in a way by this uh, uh, celestial um, um, sort of grouping of, of, God, of deities. Mm -hmm. um, once Prashant Iyengar was talking about um, the organs in the body and the different systems in the body and all of the different celestial beings that are associated with, with they are the, the, the reigning deity of the, whatever organ it is, right? And I was having this uh, concept of a kind of cosmic dance going on within and becoming a witness to that. Um, and these to, to witness to these different energies, which are connected to different systems within me. And so the first song, Svayambu, is, um, it's, Svayambu means self-created, and it's another name for uh, the god Brahma. And Brahma is the god of creation, of all creation, and it's associated with our root chakra, which is called Muladhar chakra. And so I, I had... Um, this notion of this this god. Basically, I was told later by the these dancers who I was working with, because we made a video and we did a dance to this song, that it's what I'd written was a, called a vandana, which is a kind of description of the god, a kind of and a kind of 
prayer, I suppose, a prayer of gratitude and, and a description of the magnificence of the, of the being, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so, so yes, and that, so I went through the chakras and I, I guess I wrote songs that were inspired by elements of the different chakras. And then I, I paused for a moment to have a sort of a re musical reflection on the pose Shavasana, which is an asana, which is used at the end of class to, to kind of cool down, but it's also used, it was brought in by BKS Iyengar to teach the, as a sort of doorway to teach the entrance into the more esoteric um, practices of yoga and more meditative practices like pranayama, prachahara, dharana, dhyan. I mean, these are these are very very uh, these are these are spaces for highly qualified yogis and saints to occupy. They're they're not. You can't like a normal person can't get to the, these states of being. But I used um, analogies for for things. You know, for 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 to try to describe experiences that I haven't experienced. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the analogy of the weather, you know, in clouds are clearing. Um, in, in Samkhya philosophy, they'll say uh, the Purusha, the self, is like the sun and it's, it's obscured by clouds, clouds of, of Prakriti, which is nature. And when, when that's cleared, you, you are able to see um, and be in the, the, the presence of God, right? Um, so yeah, so this basically is starts with the first three sutras of Patanjali, and then it's a little journey through these chakras with a kind of pause for Shavasana. The 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 song Shavasana, I should say, is actually a poem written by my mother. My mother is an Iyengar yoga teacher. She started working with BKS Iyengar in 1981. And she's the senior, in fact, the senior Iyengar yoga teacher in Scotland. Wow. And she, so she started to go to Pune to study with her guru, BKS Iyengar, in 1981 when I was quite young. So she was my first yoga teacher. And, and so I've had this, uh, I've grown up with this ethos in, in my family and in my in our home yeah. since I was quite young. And finally, I've come to it myself. It took me a long time. Wow. Did you find it quite um, dealing with such subject and, and, and such a kind of spiritual sort of area in life? Did it, did it feel quite like, you, you know, like thinking, I must get this right, because if it doesn't, it's not going to be Terribly, it's going yes. to be tricky, isn't it? Did, it did, did that add a little bit of pressure yeah. on, on you as an artist, thinking, how am I going to do this without it all being a bit cheesy? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, I firstly, I was greatly comforted by the notion that yoga is for everybody. I mean, you mentioned cultural appropriation earlier on in our talk. And um, that's something that I didn't want to do. But truly, um, yoga is for everybody. 
who who wants to do it right and who wants to go on that path uh just like i suppose um i mean i suppose it's a religious path it's an ethical religious path yeah and it's something that i'm serious about and have been for some time but also i i wanted this to be about my experiences so i'm careful not to um uh try to be teaching anything on this record or try to be um proselytizing anything on this record i'm not at all it's simply about my experience of life actually which was to do with uh yoga study at that mm. time that I was writing it. And those were the experiences that I were ha was having. And the experiences are, um, you know, often about mental confusion and wanting to find peace um, uh, uh, to get closer to a, a, a kind of equilibrium and uh, centered, quiet, uh, and um, you know, I hesitate to say peaceful, but a kind of um, grounded and connected place, right? A kind of, and I wanted to be soothed. Um, <clears throat> I wanted, especially you know, during that traumatic time, I wanted. I think we all did. We needed. Um, to soothe the chaos of the mental, you know, fluctuations which are happening all the time. And it's something that I uh, am always seeking, a kind of balance, you know, yes. uh, because well, I, the I, mind I, I, is chaotic. Well, I know, and it was hard to keep centered. It was very tricky to sort of wonder where we were going and what was going to happen and whether mm. we were ever going to come out of this kind of weird state. And it all felt a bit surreal. So. I would imagine. And also as we age, you know, also as we age, I find it uh, that it, it feels more important to me to uh, discover a, a deeper meaning uh, to life. And, you know, as we, as we step into our parents' roles, you know, we see our parents growing older and we, um, we start to become the elders ourselves. It's important to, to, to be learning wisdom from wise people. Um, and that's an endeavor that, that, that nourishes me and, and helps me to feel grounded. Well, it's quite humbling watching your parents getting older and um, seeing a vulnerability in them and then also experiencing a vulnerability with yourself mostly through sort of the ups mm -hmm. and downs, but also some, you know, occasional, you know, illness or hiccup that you mm -hmm. need to deal with, which you never had when you were 20. And then suddenly you're thinking, oh, mm -hmm. this is an interesting new experience. I seem to be mm -hmm. having more appointments going to the doctor and hospital than I am going out to gigs or cinema. So it's kind of, you know, things just change and it's allowing the, the you know, being okay with that and not fighting it, thinking yes. that can't happen, but it's like, well, it, this is what it's like for me 
in my 50s, which is quite different. And it's also that relationship, like you said, with your parents, which is quite different as well, because there isn't that. Mm. They suddenly are like, oh, that's a bit more present. You know, I need to just think about this a bit more and not take it for granted. So, you know, I think everything slightly changes. And it's that sort of also thinking, yes, a bit like I got into yoga, but, you know, sort of more of a... <laughs> In, there's a there's a, there's something called Le, the Les Mills. I don't know. They do body pump, body balance, and I suddenly got very obsessed with both of those things as a yeah. way to keep fit and then sort of do more exercise. Because yeah. I thought, well, if I don't, it's great on so many body. levels. Yeah, yes. yoga. I mean, and, if and I don't that's start why people now, get it's going to be really difficult it. later. So I might as well start, you know, picking, you know, and then I sort of enjoy it because initially I was. I was the most unbendy person and flexible person. And it's like, oh, I think there's an improvement there. I'm so happy. So it's, um, <laughs> it, is kind of, it is kind of interesting. But it, again, you know, it's, it's kind of finding what works and what sort of feels good. And I think that's, that's kind of important. So when, with the, coming back to the album then, as, as, mm. it, you know, as you go through it, and, and there's a story, and I'm just kind of looking at your, the, the list. So things like, mm. you've got a song called The Ladder. I mean, what's, what was mm -hmm. the kind of story behind this particular um, track? Well, that is, um, that is connected to the, the throat chakra, and the throat chakra is called Vishuddhi. It's about um, purifying speech, I suppose, literally translated. And it's connected to the element of air, but I connected to the element connected it to the element of space it's kind of a mishmash of two different chakras but so that's why I I put in um some Neil Armstrong there and some some of the radio um chatter between Apollo 11 and and the the and Houston yeah it's it's really about um uh a feeling that I've been here before, uh, a feeling, a feeling about the mystery of life, right? That that feeling that you get that have I been here before, and have I been here before many times, and and the, and the journey ahead of you, the journey towards some kind of self-realization is so long. It's so so far away. In fact, it's unrealizable. Um, you know, when you, I suppose it's about when you start to do some study, it's when you start studying that you realize how incredibly stupid you are, how ignorant you are, not stupid, but how the, the, you start to see the vast chasm of your ignorance. And that's just only the tip of the iceberg. And, but you're glad because there's an endless, um, an endless world of of um, wisdom to go and explore that you weren't that you weren't aware of. So that's, I guess, what that song is about. Yes. Did you feel? I mean, I know when you know my my love and obsession with David Bowie. Sort of his last album, Black Star, has this kind of mm -hmm. urgency and this kind of the whole subject of his you know passing from this life. I mean, did did this also have a sense of urgency within you putting this album out and 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 making it? Did it feel quite? It a did, yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah, 
it felt like a journey for me and it felt like quite an important journey. Well, it's an important, it is still an important journey for me, uh, the yogic journey. And um, it, it's ever deepening part of my life. It's, it was important, I suppose, because I've always wanted to um, make something about that, that that's to do with gratitude. Um, but whenever I tried to write something to express gratitude, it always seemed trite to me. But um, here I, I felt um, I felt that it was um, something that I could I could connect with, and I suppose it was through through these uh, these teachings that I could express the gratitude to about the joy that I feel um, doing this study and doing this work. Yeah. It's a joyful, joyful experience. And, um, you know, I finished the record with the, the words of something called the Guru Vandana, which is a prayer that you can say at the beginning of a practice, which is simply a prayer um, of gratitude to your guru and to the guru within, <clears throat> and to, then to the lineage, lineage of gurus that came before, who came before. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you're you're um, sort of bowing down to a wise heritage in gratitude, and it's such a bloody relief to um, to. <laughs> To get out of from from the the kind of the sway of the dictator of your mind stuff, you know, which is always the ego chattering away about the mundanity of everyday life. How important I am, you know. Am I important enough, you know? Um, am I famous enough? Am I good enough, you know? That person, oh, that person has more than me, and you know, all this insanity that we go through. To just lay that down and be grateful yeah. for for these incredible gifts that come at us every day that we're that we're often so unaware of. Yes, this is true. I did go to one of those Tony Robbins five day weekend workshops. You know, un unleash the power or something. And I remember he did say, you know, you should if you can change your expectations for appreciation, your life will feel like a miracle. And I, I have tried to keep mm. that in my mind because it does think, mm. yeah, I really should be a little bit more, just kind of always remind myself that. And that does help. And um, also just keeping, mm. I did sort of notice, I don't know if you've also noticed this with, either within yourself or with other people, but sometimes people on a spiritual journey can get quite heavy <laughs> and a little bit yeah. like just like, Oh, just yeah. Relax. Um, did, how, yes. how do, you, do you sort of see that with yourself, though, with, you know, taking such an interest in this and, and study and learning, not to get crushed by the whole in, in significance of yourself in this amazing universe? Because it's such a practical journey, it's so uh, humbling, really. Because you're doing this asana practice and you're crap at it, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm such an average student. So uh, it's not really about that. And also, 
um, it doesn't tend to uh, make you think how big you are. It makes you rather think how small you are. But not in a not in a um, not in a kind of um, punitive way. I mean, you're not being hard on yourself. You're not saying, "Oh, you're just nothing. You're you worthless piece of shit." You're you're just uh, a part of this thing that's much greater than than you. But you're a part of it, so you're a part of that. Um, we're made of, you know, like Joni Mitchell said, we're stardust, right? So, so uh, we're all part of the same thing. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't, uh, but I know you, what you mean about a rigidity of so-called spiritual people and, and um, the sort of ju judgmental thing that they can have for other people. Mm. Um, I, I, um, I shy away from that too. It's a fine uh, you know, line. people might lose their sense of, of humor. Yeah, I, I sort of find I did struggle. I know, I mean, it was always a bit weird because, you know, sort of there was a period where there was some, suddenly a lot of Buddhists in our community. And I, I always struggled with this idea that you changed your name to this kind of, wow, that's an amazing new name you've got. And it all felt a bit like status and ego. Phony. And I used to find that kind of like, I didn't really point it out to them, but it was like, I'm a little bit, why don't you just keep calling yourself Steve or Kev? Why do you have to have this amazing mm. name just to prove that you're, you know, so mm. you spend so much time in this kind of world? And I don't know, I, I didn't, you know, I, was, I wouldn't say I was disappointed, but I felt a little bit like, I don't know, it didn't, hey, well, I was disappointed, I think. That was just, I think that would be lovely <laughs> if there was like that moment where someone suddenly, you suddenly went, oh, you do this spiritual stuff rather than being hit it on the head with all this, I'm a Buddhist and I do this and I go right. away for five-week week retreats on silent meditations. It's like, ooh, I'm David, and um, I've got two cats. You know, it always felt a little <laughs> bit like, <laughs> a little yes. bit like, you know, just, I don't know, just a bit trying too hard rather than just letting me discover, and, you know, one discovers each other when you meet new people. That's quite nice. So, well, yeah. I think you've got to be careful of pseudo-religions. Pseudo I'm, mm. not, I'm not saying Buddhism is a pseudo-religion, but there are there are an awful lot of, um, I suppose people out there who are running sort of pseudo religious cult type things, and uh, uh, yeah, that can be yes. a, a dangerous and and uh, unhealthy place to be. Yes, we're we're good at spotting some and not so good at spotting others, really, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So look, with this new album, actually, it's only just coming out, so that's amazing. Do you yeah. have kind of other projects, kind of? that you're looking at again for sort of once the, the dust has settled on, on this particular album? Yes. Um, I've got this other album that I want to record that's sort of waiting in the wings. That's much more, um, I would say, like harkens back to my uh, T-Rex days, you know. And... Um, I've got, uh, I'm thinking about broaching a new area of writing, which is um, writing for film. And uh, that's that's a sort of daunting new task. Yes, absolutely. Would that be instrumental as well as with lyrics? It, it would be instrumental. 
Yeah. Yeah. As as Brian, yeah. you know, said to David we'll Bowie. See. Well, yes, yeah. I've been obsessed with Bowie. I don't know if you went to see the film Moon Age Daydream, but um, it's a good one. But oh, I've got to see that. Oh God, it's amazing. Um, but as Brian Eno, Eno said to him, you know, if we crash this plane, no one's going to die. So don't worry about it, David. Let's just make the low album. People will hate oh, it. Oh yeah. God, I was obsessed it. with that album, yeah. Low, That's and it put me, it made me so depressed. And I kept playing it and playing it and playing it. We did. When I was 16. That's yeah. what we did when we were 16. We wanted to feel melancholic and depressed. That's, that's what you Yeah. Did. And play Joy Division records all the time. So, um, yes. There you go, just to cheer yourself up. Um, so look, mm. if you were to, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out on this journey, is there any little kind of bullet points that you might have said, oh, this is, a, this is something that I've learned over the decades that... You might ignore, but I'll tell you all the same. God, that's a great question. I think I would tell her not to worry so much. And um, not to worry about what others thought so much. And uh, to try and enjoy herself more. I was very worried, I think, as a young person. Didn't didn't rather and a lot of make fear you quite a lot more tense, or did it make you feel more empowered? The experience of rather. I think in the end it made me feel more empowered. But you know, I was the youngest person in our term, and uh, so and I was a bit in awe of the, some of the people who were in our term. You know, they'd been to Oxford and Cambridge, and then they came to Rada. I just came from high school, you know, and uh, from Scotland. Yes. Um, but it did, in the end, punch some some oomph into me. Yeah, it did. Fantastic. Well, that's all good, isn't it? Well, look, thank you ever so much for this. I've I've loved. Um, it's been great, and I love the album, and I'm I'm definitely going to digest it even more now because of, of sort of yeah, certain things that um were kind of interesting, and now you've spoke about them, it's even more interesting. So um, yeah, this it's is so really it's so nice to meet you too, David. Oh, good. I guess we just like hooked up on Facebook or something, right? I or guess we did. How it's, did we it's meet? It's kind of funny because I'm always looking, you know, for sort of interesting artists and, and mm. musicians, probably from the '80s, but other decades. And I must something must have sort of come up because you know you, there must have been something. I went, oh, that's interesting. I probably started. Oh look, you've got an interest and you've got some sort of you're in this band and you've done these other albums and I must have thought, Oh, this is curious. So um yes, you'll you yes, I have a great curiosity with these these um artists. So yeah, that must have been how it happened. But it's been brilliant and uh, really loved listening to your music and it's great that you've got so much out there as well. So um yeah, I know. Embrace your eighties work, I know. Most actually it's kind of interesting uh, in a way, because um I don't know. I think when I started doing this show, the 80s, oh, it's only five years ago, but I think there's a passing of time that happens that you just think, I'm not bothered, I'm not interested. And suddenly in the last few years, there's been like so many films about things from the, the 80s and everyone's writing their book about the 80s at the moment. It's absolutely bizarre, but it can't be all about lockdown, their lockdown project. I think it's just like something happens and you just take it for granted. And then people have gone yes. back and gone, actually, this is a bit better than I expected. There was something special about it. it was, and we took it all for granted. We thought it was just, that's what happened. You know, it was all wonderful. And then it's like, 
no, it was quite a special time. And because I think you do your stuff in your, you know, like you were saying a bit earlier, in your 20s and, and then towards the latter half and into the 30s, there's homes, there's houses, there's, um, you know, there's family, there's children, there's, there's the ups and downs of your own life, then your parents. And I think you kind of just have to park everything. And then there's a little bit of reflection goes on. And you think, oh, actually, there are some quite, you know, some quite nice moments as well. You find yourself looking at, a, you know, a photo album and you're thinking, oh, yes, I remember mm. that person in that time. And and obviously mm. everyone else was doing the same because you wouldn't believe how many people have been writing books and making films about the 80s. Wow. wow. I know, it's there, isn't it? But, I mean, there um, were some great, great epic bands. There were a lot epic. Of and also the music scene changed so much from that early 80s with a bit of new romantic and electronic music to there was kind of a bit of goth rock and then there was the dance. My brother was very into Gary Newman. Do you remember Gary Newman? Oh, yes. Yeah, Gary Newman's kind of... Here in my car. Our friends electric. And um, and then yeah. he sort of disappeared and then he's come back and he's got quite a busy life now. And I think it was just kind of an interesting... That was a particularly interesting decade. And then, I mean, all the decades are interesting because there's different things that happen, mm. but it was just a fascinating time. Do you remember that album, Dirk Wears White Socks? By Adam Ant. Dirk Wears White Socks. Nobody knows this record. Adam Ant. Um, you have to I hear did, that record. Did it have the hits on it? No. It was the one before the hits. Because I, I did an interview with Marco Peroni, who was a guitarist at that time. And, um, yeah, no, I don't know it too well, but... Um, yeah, it's interesting. Give it a listen. I will give it a listen. Did it have Dog Eat Dog and... Um... Nope, 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 nope. It was the one before... That, that I know which album you're talking about. It's called Dirk Wears White Socks. And he was like... God, it's such an inspired record. It's interesting. It's so odd. Because Adam was a very good... Um, he did... He used to do flyers and posters. There was a book like this came out recently... Board, and it's kind of just the graphics and there's and there's some work by Adam Ant in it really and, oh um, yeah and interestingly he was quite a good artist and there was a woman called Dorothy Max I think that's her name she's just writing her book and that's going to come out this autumn and she was in those bands that um like Throbbing Gristle and she knew Adam Ant and she knew Marco and Peroni and she was into that alternative slightly shocking scene yeah. during the 70s and 80s her book will come out, and I'm sure she'll be mentioning lots about that. But Adam's still... Oh, God, I'm going to look for that. Yes, Adam's still with us, which is good. So that's good. But I will I will check it out, because I know John Peel used to play a lot of his very early stuff. And he was quite... He was very punk, wasn't he? He was right at the beginning yes. of punk. And bizarrely, yeah. then he hit it with these um, goody two-shoes. Pop songs. And his, yeah. His kind of classic rock, rock albums before. Yeah. It all went a bit south, really, for Adam. Anyway, look, I'll let you get on, but thank you again for this. And if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always use it or listen to it. Um, I will. I will. I will. I'd love to. I'll, I'll post it. And yeah. it's very nice to meet you, David. I love your take on the world and you've, you've got a very encyclopedic mind. You, you've, you remember a lot. I'd love to sit down, have a cup of tea and pick your brains about all these bands that oh, I've yeah. forgotten about mentioning <laughs> yeah there's a bit a lot of bands aren't there but look have a great day and take okay, care you and, too. Um, i'll go back to listen to the record again anyway look okay take care there bye-bye all right bye okay.
And that, dear listener, is, is the end of the interview. You probably guessed that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Rebecca for giving me the time for that. Her new album is out and available from all good record shops and also you can listen to it online. And um, as she said, there is going to be new material. But uh, yes, Parts of Speech, Pieces of Sound is out and about. And um, yes, it's worth checking out her previous and earlier stuff. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, uh, these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. There you go. Anyway, thanks a lot. Stay safe.